Welcome to The Craft. I'm your host, Mae Globus. This podcast is a collection of intimate conversations on artistry, mastery, and life with talented, passionately curious creatives and entrepreneurs. Most are dear friends, some are those I've admired from afar. I hope you enjoy these conversations, this exploration of the humanity that connects all of us as much as I do having them. Thank you for being here and for listening. This episode is brought to you by Before, an incredible new self-care brand that just launched their first products, a line of purifying toothpastes. I'm obsessive about my teeth and brush them usually three times a day, so I'm super excited to be using Before. It ticks off many boxes of what a good toothpaste should be. Their custom supermint flavor actually tastes really good, and the consistency is silky, and at the same time, it doesn't leak out of the tube, which is a total pet peeve of mine. It's also non-abrasive, so it doesn't destroy your tooth enamel. All the harmful ingredients have been replaced by clean alternatives, and their custom blend of fluoride and dentist-approved ingredients totally promotes optimal mouth health. Before also deeply cares about our planet. Their tubes are made from 100% recyclable plant-based sugarcane and creates 50% less carbon footprint than traditional toothpaste tubes. As you all can tell from the show, I'm a huge fan of good, purposeful design, and let me tell you, the design and color palette of these are beautiful. The tube stands upright on your counter and makes your bathroom look minimal and chic. Visit their website, before.com, and enter the code CRAFT10, C-R-A-F-T-1-0, to receive 10% off your entire purchase. One-time use per customer. I'm a huge fan of what they stand for. You won't be sorry, and your teeth and the planet will thank you. As a number of you know, I'm also a certified sound therapy practitioner and founder of Oto Healing, a sound therapy studio and practice. Sound has been a healing modality through many cultures for thousands of years. Oto's approach to sound is rooted in both art and science, the art being the history of sound, the science being quantum physics, biology, brainwave states, and more. All listeners of the show get 15% off their first private one-hour session. Visit otohealing.com to book yours now. Sara Gulamali is bright and brilliant, not only as a person, but also as an award-winning young artist. For years, she's created her own works, has hosted creative events through the Tate Exchange Program, and is now part of supporting artists as Associate Director at Howard 495, a global art advisory firm and gallery, serving new and dedicated collectors in both private and commercial spaces. As a British Pakistani, she's proud of her Muslim heritage, and in 2017, with two close friends, founded Muslim Sisterhood, a collective and creative agency working across campaign production, research, consultancy, and community-focused initiatives with clients such as Nike, Crocs, Disney, the NHS, and more. Their aim is to spotlight, unite, and uplift Muslim women across the world, and they've been featured in British Vogue, Dazed, and Mary Claire, Arabia. Born and raised in London, she came from a close-knit family and had a wonderful bond with her late grandmother, who taught Sara the basis of the Muslim faith. She was also very close with her mother, who was diagnosed with cancer in 2011-2012 and passed two months later. Creativity was intrinsic to Sara as a young person, and she was always practicing art in various methods. After high school, she attended Kingston University for a foundation degree, followed by Central St. Martin's for a Bachelor of Fine Arts. She also co-curated the first student show at the Lethaby Gallery within the university. 
In 2019, she located to Vancouver from London to be with her now husband and eventually connected to Krista Howard, founder of Howard 495. In this conversation, we go deep into life circumstances that forced her to grow up quickly, what faith looks like to Sarah, the role art plays in her life, how art university experiences and friendships taught her to question the nature of things, the genesis story of Muslim sisterhood, navigating culture shock moving from London to Vancouver, how she navigates spaces as a Muslim woman, and much more. Please enjoy this conversation with the hyper-intelligent, warm, and luminous Sara Gulamali. Sara Gulamali. Hi. Hi. <laughs> Welcome to the show. Thank you. How are you feeling? I'm feeling good. You have such a soft voice, May. It's so it's so calming already off the bat. You're like, how are you? <laughs> I love it. It's a good listen. Except when I get really excited. Then the oh, yeah, that's rise well. and it gets really, really high. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks for having me. Of course. Well, you and I met through my friend Smokey. Mm-hmm. And he had told me, you need to go to this gallery on Commercial Street, Howard 495. And he was like, you would just love the women who work there. And so I came with him and I got to meet you and Krista, who's going to be on the show mm-hmm. in a number of weeks. And I just loved and love still your energy. It's very mm. warm and welcoming, which is not always the case when you walk into a gallery. Yeah, for sure. I definitely think we try and um, put down that like pretentious kind of environment that galleries often have. You know, we don't want people to feel scared to come in and we want people to be able to come and enjoy the work that we do and like partake in discussions. That's really important to us. So yeah, we just appreciated that you were so open to like having discussions and talking with us. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh, you know me. Now, now you know me. I love getting deep. Yeah, honestly. No, it's really it's really refreshing to have that because mm. I feel like not many people are that honest and open off the bat. Mm. I mean, this is what we need to do as humans. Why not? Let's sure. share. Um, but speaking of sharing, let's uh, let's go back into your childhood. You were born in London. Yes. So I was born in London. I lived in Ealing like my whole life, pretty much up until 2018. Um, yeah. What do you want to know? You tell me. I just want to hear the story of, oh my gosh. of what it was like growing up in London, British Pakistani, and what your parents were like. What oh your- my gosh. Um So yeah, I loved living in London. It really was like kind of all I knew. Um, Growing up, I had really close relationships with my family, um, especially my grandmother. Um, I was super close with her. She kind of really taught us the basis of, um, I'm Muslim, obviously. So she really taught us the basis of kind of my faith. Um, And growing up, I was just very close with all my cousins and my uncles. So yeah, it was really fun to grow up um, with such a close-knit family over mm. there. Um, I lived with my mom, my dad, and my younger brother, um, who were special needs. And so growing up, it was like we had a lot of exciting stories with my brother just kind of running around, causing havoc, and um, me just following along. And yeah, it was just, it, it was a fun time. Mm. Tell me about your parents. So my mom was kind of a stay-at-home mom. She worked for a little bit, but that's really how I remember her. She was very much stay-at-home. You know, she was kind of my primary caregiver. She really did everything 
I would I really attest a lot of my kind of outlook on life um, to the way she used to be very open with me and explain to me things. She was very strict. Don't get me wrong. I was like, I was always like so scared. I would never step a foot out of line because like I was just very, um, yeah, I never wanted to like disappoint people. And but I still had a really, really close relationship with my mom. My dad was very much like a workaholic, so he wasn't really home as much. He wasn't so much of a caregiver, but yeah, it was super, super close to my mom. And then, um, you know, in about 2011, 2012, she was diagnosed with cancer. So pretty early on, you know, she got diagnosed with acute lymphoma and ended up passing away like two months after her diagnosis. So honestly, I had to grow up pretty quickly because of that, trying to figure out. I had I had my older sister who was living abroad at the time. She helped as much as she could from where she was. But yeah, it was it was really different. I had to grow up a lot faster than I think most of my kind of peers. Mm-hmm. Did you feel uh, a point, you know, at this time where you had sort of just a loss of innocence because you had to to grow up so quickly? I mean... It's strange. I feel like as you get older, your perception gets skewed. So maybe I felt different at the time. But, you know, I still had a I had a great group of friends. I had a really solid foundation. I went to an all girls school. So I was constantly surrounded by like strong, like female, like I had like a lot of like, I had always had girl groups and they all had mums. And so even though my mom wasn't around, I really had a great support system of mums who really took tried to take on that role in a different way. Of course, no one can ever replace your mum. But I felt that um, I, ha- I had lots of people who I could lean on. And my friends at the time really became kind of like family. They were, they I obviously you see them at school every day. They were the people who I saw the most throughout everything that I was going through. Mm. And so I, I don't know... I think upon reflection, I probably did have a loss of innocence, but at the time I was still enjoying myself. Like I was still maintaining as much as I could as like a happy teenager because I had that support system around me. Mm, yeah. You were still surrounded by love. Yeah. hundred mm. percent. Like mm-hmm. I, I hear sometimes people talk about their high school experience and a lot of people face things like bullying or had a really negative experience but I had just like only positive things to say like I used to used to make jokes like oh my god I peaked in high school like that was the best years of my life like just being because with it for a while but I really wanted to maintain like faith and um keep that something in my life because I felt like that was something they wanted for me and so to keep them kind of close to me I keep that I kept that within me Hmm. what does faith look like to you Well, obviously, as I mentioned, I'm Muslim. So there's kind of the intrinsic um, elements of what it means to be a Muslim that come with having faith. But also at the same time, I think there was a lot of spirituality. I was really always interested in trying to understand why we as Muslims do certain things that we do and why we practice certain practices and really be able to understand my religion in a way that if I was to have a discussion with someone about it, I didn't feel like I was following blindly. Like I truly understood what I was believing and understood why I why I do it and why it's important. So I I really and I used to ask my mom tons of questions. 
I used to be like, I, I used to always question why we were what we were and why we did what we did. And, you know, we're, you know, I was born Muslim, so I'm Muslim. But, you know, if I was born in another family, I would be this. So, like, how do we know what we're doing is right? Da, 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 da. And we would always have these kind of theological discussions. And she would, she was never afraid of, like, answering those. And I appreciate that because I know some parents or some, like, families of faith, they don't want you to question too much. They're just kind of like, this is the way it is. Whereas I think... um my family were very open to wanting to understand um, and they're saying you should understand um, and then make your own decision at the end of the day and it'll make you stronger in that faith. Mm, there's an openness, such an openness to that. Yeah, for sure. Because I feel like, you know, as you get older, especially when, when you're Muslim, there's so many practices that kind of go maybe against what typical, you know, teenagers or life is expected you go to university drinking culture is huge muslims don't drink alcohol so the fact that you know you're going to be tested in ways that you know you would never expect so if you're not strong in your faith or you don't understand why you are not allowed to do certain things or why you you shouldn't be doing certain things you you're gonna you're gonna fall you're gonna fall into it right so i think for me to really understand um the basis of my faith helps me to kind of come to terms of it when I face those challenges. Mm. And I imagine having that faith um, allows you to come back to something rooted and grounded when things may feel hectic. Oh yeah, 100%. And chaotic. Oh, 100%. Like a lot, I think I was able to come to peace with my mom's passing as well because I just felt like this world tested her in so many difficult ways and being Muslim, I believe a lot in the afterlife. I'm like, wow, they must have seen so much in their lifetime that they just don't even express or like no one's ever asked them. Mm-hmm. They just push that down because mm-hmm. they, they needed to keep on going. For sure. What what role did art play in your life when you were younger? I'm, I was always pretty much, um, I was always a creative child. You know, I was always into doing something creative, drawing, sculpting, painting, um, so it really was, I don't know if I, it was like an outlet or I just, I just genuinely enjoyed it. So, and, and a lot of my aunts and my mom was very creative. I'd always see her drawing on kind of notepads. And, um, so I think it was always kind of intrinsic to who I was. And then when I was in high school, um, you know, my mom really encouraged that. She sent me to, um, you know, art tutors and art classes. And I was always kind of practicing and building on that skill. And then when I was uh, in high school, I had an art teacher who was really influential for me. She really um, taught me a lot. And um, I remember I was having a bit of like an epiphany because by this point, my mom had passed away and it was just my dad. And just as we discussed previously, that whole kind of intrinsic survival of the fittest um, was his outlook. And so he was pushing me to go do law because I had kind of the qualifications to, to do either, basically. I had, I had done like English and philosophy, so I could have gone into a law and, and he was really pushing me to do that. And I went into the art room and I was like, that's it, like I'm applying for, for a law degree. Like there's no, like I can't do art, it's too risky. I don't know what I'm gonna do with it. I had no idea, like I knew I wasn't gonna be a famous artist, but I had no idea what I was gonna do. And my art teacher just looked at me and she was like, but why? Like, that's so not honest. Like that's not mm. what you want to do. So, you know, stop thinking, stop, you know, things work out. You don't realize how big the world is and how many opportunities they are. So stop pushing yourself into something, in, into a box that you don't want to be in. 
And I'm so glad I made that decision. Then I listened to her and then I applied for art and it was like the best decision I ever made. Oh, I love that. She said that to you yeah. about, about that's not your truth. Yeah, for sure. No, it made, like I needed someone else to hear that because I, I needed that other perspective. Mm-hmm. And I think I was looking for a reason as well. I think I was. Lo- I think <laughs> I was like, someone tell me. Yeah, I know. I was like, please. <laughs> yeah, I was hundred percent waiting for someone to just just give me an excuse. Yeah, you could go to back apply. to that. You're yeah. like, but my teacher said. Yeah, I, and you, I knew. Like my sister had studied fine art as well, and she had gone into a really successful graphic design career, and I'd seen her be really successful. So I knew it was possible. Um, I didn't have like the. I wasn't very good at graphic design. I knew that wasn't going to be a career for me. But I knew that people can study art and still be successful. I had seen that in in my close circle. So mm-hmm. I was just looking for an excuse. I think I was just getting cold feet. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You just need a little warming up. Yeah. A little fire. For sure. I feel like people make it seem when you're applying for uni that like you're signing up for the rest of your life. And you feel that, especially when you're in high school, it just feels like everything you're doing. Especially, I don't know about here, actually. But in the UK, there's such, like the education system really just pushes you to feel like everything's really final and really important and really, really crucial to your future. Like, you know, we had this thing called D of E, which is called the Duke of Edinburgh. And it's like a program that a lot of schools run. And it's about, it teaches you like different skills and and you know you do you do camping and you do hiking and you do like all these it's different like yeah, yeah kind of and and you do all this kind of stuff and I remember I didn't you know I, I didn't want to do DAV and oh my god my school made me feel like I was never going to achieve anything because I didn't I didn't do this and I felt that way I felt so bad about it and so yeah I just feel like school really pushed us to feel like every decision we made was going to be so influential to our life and so crucial and then after uh, when I got to uni I was like wow some people like don't even turn up to class and they're still (laughs) gonna get a degree like it's so different oh my god I'm just listening to you now and I'm just like what is with these fear-based systems yeah that's that's it's time to go yeah honestly Mm -hmm. like Mm -hmm. even even still like I really appreciated my education I felt Mm -hmm. like I was really lucky and privileged with the type of education I got. I had access to such great opportunities that when I speak to kind of my husband and, you know, kind of his family of what they do in school, like I had a lot of, I had a lot of learning lessons that I don't feel like um, every school gets. So I was really lucky in that regard. But yeah, it was like really rigorous education. Mm. I'm just going to go through some chronological things so that people understand um, your history. So you went to Kingston University for a foundation degree. Yeah. And then uh, to Central St. Martin's for your BFA. And this led to a lot of great opportunities for you. You co-curated the first student show at the Lethaby Gallery, which is within the university. Mm -hmm. And then you also did a Tate exchange program for three years in a row. Um, Tell me about this time and this, this sounds like a a very expansive time for a young person who is an artist. Yeah, uni was so, like looking back, it was so much fun. When I first started, I was really worried. So when I was at Kingston, I did not enjoy myself, Um, especially being like a visibly Muslim woman, like in general being um, a woman of faith in uni like I felt like it was very rare especially in arts uni specifically like I've, I've noticed in other in other there's more of a Muslim community but being in an arts degree it's kind of you don't see many Muslims um, practicing Muslims in that environment at least where I was so at Kingston I was really like oh my god how am I going to survive this because you know I was the only one who didn't drink everyone wanted to go to the pub after I wasn't really comfortable with that I had like barely any friends and I really was struggling to to navigate 
um, being Muslim in uni. And I was always just, I was so attached to my high school friends because I had such a diverse group of high school friends. So, um, and, and my foundation was like a majority white classmates. So I really felt like, oh, like, you know, where's all the people of color? Where's you kind of, where's the kind of discussions? And I didn't feel as comfortable and open as I felt in high school. So it was a real culture shock for me. And then going into um, CSM, once I, I, I did my BA, my first year, I was really lucky because I saw another hijabi girl who was Mari Mafuz, who is still my longtime friend. And, um, and we saw each other and something really funny happened because uh, one of the tutors mixed us up, which is so like typical. Yes, so typical. Yeah, of course. Like, okay, we all look the same. So yeah, he, he mixed us up and then we kind of looked at each other with this kind of knowing look of like, oh, you know, they all think we're the same. Ha ha. And then we just like immediately clicked and became really good friends. And then obviously our good friend, Hugo Hutchins, another shout out, great artist, um, those two still own a, have a studio back in the UK and they do a lot of work together. But we kind of became a trio. Um, and that just really transformed my university experience, I think. Having three, like having two really good friends and having a stable group again. Because me, I love I love me a group. I, lo <laughs> I, lo I love me a stable group. Yeah, you and need your friend family. Exactly, yeah. So that they were just like my friend family. And we just like learned a lot from each other. And we went through this whole experience together. So that's what really made my university experience. Mm. And it must be so nice to be able to have artistic dialogue with yeah. people that you trust. 100%. And that was really different because that was the one thing that my high school friends could never give me because, you know, I became really like, you know, analyzing and, and you know, university does that to you. And I feel like we were having always so many art discussions that my university, I mean, my high school friends could never relate to or like partake in. So it was really good to have that outlet and to have people who are, um, always interested in, in questioning the nature of things and mm. yeah and just go to galleries with go to exhibitions with so yeah it was a lot of fun that's great and so you did some freelance content producing for Nike and Converse but the biggest thing that happened was you co-founded Muslim Sisterhood yeah yes so, so all, all of that Nike stuff actually was in with within was within, within Muslim Sisterhood yeah mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so yeah I think around um as I mentioned, still, even though I had Maria, we were the only uh, really two Muslim girls in our kind of class. And and I know that for some people that's like, that in itself is still really good, but you know, London is a huge Muslim population. And I was, again, really diverse um, city. So the fact that we were the only two and that there were barely any people of color in our, in our course, um, still did not feel as diverse as it could be compared to what was really out there in the city. So I just felt it was really difficult for me to make work that was really honest about myself in a school and a system that really didn't understand me. Um, you know, even when I was in the beginning, when I would make art just for the sake of being an artist and exploring, I was really into like form and material and sculpture and I'd make all these things and people would always try and tie it back to my identity and say, you know, like, oh, is, is this to do with your faith or is it to do with your religion? And I would kind of roll my eyes and think, no, I'm, I'm more than just kind of the visible Muslim that you see on the outside. Like I can still, I can be an artist and not have to be a Muslim artist. So I was really trying to reject that. And then I think when those questions started coming up, I started incorporating that within my work and embracing that a little bit. But then 
I just felt the conversations that I was having in my crits were really stunted because people just didn't understand where I was coming from or the kind of topics or um, struggles I was discussing within my work. And so there was like a sense of frustration there. And then I met um, Zainab, who was also studying fine art, but she was at uh, UCL and um, that's University College of London. And she was studying at the Slade, which was an arts uni. And and she had curated her own exhibition of um, a bunch of Somali artists. And it was like the first time I had seen like a group of like um, women of color, Muslim women, all making work authentically about their identity and it all being in one space. And I was just so excited by it and amazed that she was able to pull something like this off independently outside of the institution, because everything I had known was just doing stuff within within the college or within the resources that you were given. And so to see herself organize and to put something together that was really representative of her and, and where she came from and women she related to was so exciting. So I had asked if uh, we could kind of collaborate on something together. So we had um, kind of gone out and taken all these photographs together and, and, and uh, she had gotten us a great opportunity to have those photos be taken over in New York on like bus stands and bus stations. And it was all about, um, this was like early on, like, what so year like was it? 2017. Yeah, like yeah. 2017. Before, like, I feel like now diversity is such a huge kind of common word and such a push. But at, at that time, it really wasn't, we, we weren't there yet. And so the that was only like, five years ago. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I know. It. We've come so far in such a short amount of time. But at the time, there wasn't that much opportunity. And so it was all about like, oh, Muslim women taking up space. Like that was just, that was really it. That was just like, let's just take up space. Let's just like make ourselves extra visible, extra seen. And um, Lamisa was working for um, Amalia, which was like a Muslim kind of blogger um, space at the time. And she had seen the campaign and reached out to us and said like, oh my gosh, I love what you guys are doing. Should, do you want to work on something together? That's incredible. And it turned, it turned into something greater than just that oh, project. Yeah. And now it's a collective and a creative agency. And you've worked with some great clients, Crocs, Nike, Daily Paper, Disney, the NHS, you've been featured in publications like Dazed and British Vogue and Mary Claire Arabia. That's incredible. Yeah. That visibility. For sure. And it was all like non, not intentional. I think that's really um, what's so different to what you see now, because I think now everyone starts an Instagram with the kind of thought or intention of like, oh, I want to go viral or I want to get verified or I want to build a following. And that really was never our intention. We started this, we just took photos just because we wanted to take photos. And that was how we started. We we were, we defined ourselves as a photography collective, but we that we didn't even know what that meant. We were just going around and inviting Muslim women to come together and uh, create a sense of community and photograph them in a way that was authentic and different to anything we had ever seen. So previous to this, when you look up the idea of a Muslim woman, you got kind of one look a very kind of monolith look or, um, you know, it wasn't really represented the fashion, the style, everything wasn't very representative of what it meant for us as like women growing up in inner city London. What does it mean to navigate that space as a Muslim and what spaces and what look really relates to us? So that was kind of the goal. It was like, oh yeah, let's do a street style. Let's just invite Muslim women together and take photos of them in street clothes and um, kind of build a portfolio. And we did that. And then Zainab had shared it into a group chat 
and they had all said oh my gosh you have to post this on instagram so we were like okay and then we thought oh yeah let's make an instagram what should we call it and you know it was just a bunch of muslim women and, and we said okay let's call it muslim sisterhood and we built like a thousand followers like in like overnight pretty you much you have a huge following now well now yeah we've just hit fifteen thousand and kind of still growing which is amazing but yeah when we started it was just not our intention to do that and then you know slowly slowly women started reaching out um saying you know i would love to get photographed and and even girls who were like never really shouted about them identifying as Muslim or being a practicing Muslim suddenly wanted to be associated with our platform. So it was a great thing that, you know, it suddenly wasn't, it was suddenly quote unquote cool to be Muslim, which like up until that point, I'd always felt so like, because university made me feel so embarrassed about my faith. It was like, oh, you don't shout about it. You don't really talk about it because it's like this uncool thing to be. Hmm. And so suddenly it was like, oh, now people are proud actually to identify as Muslim and proud to be practicing and want want to build up a community that up until then, like there wasn't really such a thing. Yeah, you know, and all of this is so beautiful and, and very connected actually to um, a podcast that I was listening to this morning. There's a great podcast called Talk Easy, and uh, the host is Sam Fragoso, and he's just a wonderful interviewer. But he was interviewing Tyler Mitchell, um, who was the first black photographer to be on the cover of Vogue. He shot the the um, yes. Beyonce cover. Yes. Do you remember that? Yeah. And uh, he had put out a book um, of his photography. And the way he described it was, you know, he was photographing his people in in joy mm. and in light. Exactly. And not in pain, just as they are, 100%. as they live. Exactly. And I think that's that's such a key to our ethos of what we try and do. We're like, we're trying to cultivate Muslim joy because so often – um, you know, you associate Muslim with so much pain and so, such negative press. And it's so, it, it's like, it wasn't what we related to in our experience. And we were like, we just want to create a joyful space for Muslim and specifically Muslim women as well. Because it was that at that intersection of like, we want to make sure that um, our women have spaces where they can be authentic and be themselves and be considered. Because up until that point, we had just felt so unconsidered in a lot of spaces. And so we wanted to say, we want to make a space that they can be prioritized and have opportunities and do things that they otherwise would not be able to find elsewhere. And to share that you have agency. Yeah, for 100%. Mm, it's really beautiful. That's it's great. And you, people, please do check out the work because it is vibrant. It really is. Thank you. Mm-hmm. And I'd love to go to 2019 now. Let's fast forward a little bit. You relocate to Vancouver yes. from London yes. to be with your husband. Yes. And you experience something that many new newcomers do. You know, there's uh, coldness, uh, not welcoming, opportunities are not great. It's a culture shock. Mm-hmm. And how? tell me how you tried to navigate that. Coming from such a vibrant... Oh my gosh, yeah. It was really difficult. Set of years. It was so difficult on so many on like so many different levels as well, because as I mentioned, you know, I had struggled with like my, my, you know, being open about my faith in the beginning of university. And then I found Muslim sisterhood and we had finally built something which was so all about being proud of like who we are and really reaching a point where we were so um, 
authentically identifying as Muslim. It was the first time in my life where I really had built like a Muslim female community and I felt so proud of who I was and, and what I had built. And then I obviously made the decision to relocate here. But with the community being so, you know, so much smaller than I was used to and this city being so different to, you know, as diverse as Lon like London is. So it felt like going kind of back to that square one of like, oh my God, nobody knows what Ramadan is here. Nobody knows, like, you know what I mean? Like I was back into feeling like, oh my gosh, I don't fit in and um, people don't really get it here. So I think that was like, the first thing that was such a culture shock. Um, and then, yeah, and then also the general anxieties about moving country, you know, not not having the agency that I used to have, no, not knowing where the best places to shop are, not knowing, you know, like having to navigate a whole different culture is so different. And then, yeah, and just, and, and also it was just before COVID as well. So I mm -hmm. just, then, then COVID hits, although selfishly, it, COVID <laughs> really helped with my London FOMO though because I felt like no one could go out. Everyone was on yes. Zoom. So I was like, this actually works out You're perfectly like, for me. I'm in nature. <laughs> yeah, I know. And then also just like, you know, none of my friends in London are going out. So I'm like, I'm not missing out on anything. And <laughs> That's true. Yeah. And then everyone has to be on Zoom. I was like, I can be on Zoom too, guys. <laughs> so it actually kind of, um, to some, to some extent helped in that regard. But yeah, I mean, it was just really, really difficult also because, um, yeah, Muslim sisterhood was in a point of growth and it was, you know, I was starting to get work and opportunities. So to come here and not have work straight away and really struggle to find a job and find a space where I could still be doing something creative and be happy just felt really impossible at that time. Like I was applying for so many things and I wasn't hearing back and I was just getting really bogged down of like, oh my God, what, what am I going to do? Mm -hmm. And it's funny how, it's really funny how things work out. Oh, always. Yeah. Always. You've got to trust the, that. It's honestly, all going to be, it's going to shake out in the end somehow. Honestly, mm -hmm. I can tell you like how I fell into my work at Howard 495 because it is all quite eerie. But so I had been applying for things for so long and I just felt so isolated because, you know, obviously I had my husband, but um, I just felt so uh, isolated because I didn't have any friends. And I had just come from a place where I just talked about my friends had been so crucial to my survival <laughs> in, in London. So it's like to be here was just so such a different space. And then um, I had seen that my university had an alumni group that would meet in Vancouver of, of kind of people who had studied at the university and who were here and they had an alumni event. And I remember so vividly driving there and 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 just telling Zane, my husband, I was like, oh, I don't want to go. Like, I don't even want to go. Like, no one's going to, like, I'm just going to be the odd one out. And it was in a bar and I was like, oh, I'm just going to be that odd one out. No one's going to like talk to me. I'm so awkward. Like, I I just almost didn't didn't go. And, and no, he forced me as he always does. <laughs> he forced me for the better. And then I went and I met um, a woman called, Kim, who was at the time um, the director of Capture Photo Festival. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Kim Spencer Nairing. Yes. Yeah. And um, we had done like kind of little talks about our experiences and work. And, and she was just so open and so lovely. Um, and she and, and we had spoken for a while and she said, you should meet me for coffee and like, let's talk more. And I'd love to know more about what you're doing. And 
And it was the first time, you know, I'm I'm the kind of personality where if someone doesn't take that first step towards me, it's really bad. But if someone does take the first step towards me, I really struggle to make a first step towards someone else. And so I just felt like she was really open. So then I felt comfortable enough to return that. And so I met up with her and she took me around kind of the capture offices and we went down and we, we sat for coffee and I just really just kind of let it all out and I expressed to her this kind of struggle I was having, the experiences that I had and how I really felt like I was building something in the UK and that experience didn't translate in Vancouver. No one knew about Muslim sisterhood. No one knew, no one really cared about the kind of stuff I was doing over there. The culture was different. So that I just felt like I had so much to offer, but I just didn't know where to put it. And she had mentioned that, oh, you know, I, I know of this um, advisor called Krista Howard, who's been looking for an assistant. Um, you know, I, I, I can recommend you to her or maybe you could reach out to her and give you her email. And I was like, yeah, okay, like that would be great. And I left the coffee shop and I Googled Howard 495 and I saw the gallery and I saw the website and I saw the kind of um, names and I recognized the artists and, and it was a very kind of international looking um, sort of program. And I had, you know, I was so active in the arts community in London that coming here, I'd visited a few galleries and I didn't didn't really I didn't recognize a lot of the artists the type of work was very different to what I was used to so to go on Howard 495's website and see work and artists that I really I know and I was familiar with and that I loved exciting um, it, it was exciting <laughs> it was like oh my god okay like this is the kind of place that I would love to be surrounded by and I just like jumped on a bus and I went straight there like I just left the coffee shop and I was like I'm going I'm like not letting this opportunity go I need to go there and check it out and I went and I rang the doorbell and like typical Krista fashion, she has a ring doorbell and she's not there. And she's like, she's like, I'm in the car. I'm on my way. <laughs> that's Krista. Yeah, honestly, that's Krista. Like now that I know her, like, oh, bless her. That, that's so, that's so like that experience. And so, um, and so I just sat down. I like sat on the steps outside uh, on East Hastings <laughs> like, <laughs> and uh, on Railway Street. And I'm just sitting on the step, not realizing that kind of area is not yeah. the type of area you just sit on the steps. And so I was just sitting there and I just waited like 20 minutes for, for her to arrive. And then she pulled up. And she was just like, oh, hi. And I was like, hi, like, I want to work for you. Like, I I'm your assistant. Yeah, I, I, <laughs> I would love to work for you. And, and I would love to talk to you. And she was very open. And she was like, yeah, like, let's go upstairs. And I had my laptop with me. And she just let me talk. And I was just feeling really nervous because I was like, is this an interview or is this not an interview? I don't really know. But I was just like, I'm just going to tell her my whole life story. So I just went, I opened my laptop and I showed her all the artwork I had done and what I was doing. And, you know, we were just kind of talking and she was telling me about people she knew and I was just getting really excited and it was just kind of a natural, we kind of naturally just clicked, I think, in that moment. And so she was like, yeah, sure. Like, um, I'm, you, you can start with me two days a week. And I was like, okay, yeah, I'll take it. Like, no matter what, I'll take anything. Um, and so I started off just kind of working for her two days a week and going into the gallery and yeah, I was just, I was just kind of the, manning the desk. Like that was really my, my only job at the time. It was just kind of man the desk and, and see people as they walk in. And I think kind of as, as I grew with her, you know, she, I think she also appreciated that I wasn't, I wasn't just there to just man the desk. Like I really wanted to, um, 
you know, where where I always had suggestions and I always had advice and and I appreciated that she was always open to listen as well. Like she always asked me like, oh, what do you think? And like, oh, like, what do you think about this? Or listen to my suggestion and say like, oh, that's a great idea. And it was really nice to have a someone who I could have a dialogue with. And it wasn't so much of a hierarchy, but she, even though she was my boss, she was still very open to hearing what I had to say. Mm. And I think she appreciated that I was very tuned in, that I actually had an opinion to give. Yeah, I was going to use the word openness. That, yeah. That there was an openness there, kind of, you know, like that openness that you had with your mom too. For sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And now you're associate director. Yes. Which yes. is great. I know. Yeah, that's really, really, um, I'm so happy for you. Thank you. That you're yeah. able to land there. I know. And find a place for yourself. And for people who don't know uh, Howard 495, it's an art advisory firm and mm-hmm. you work with new clients, you work with dedicated collectors, um, both in the private and the commercial spaces. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, it's so different to what anything I was, I didn't even know what an art advisor was when I started, to be honest. I really didn't understand what our job was. But now, you know, like years later, I've, I, I so appreciate it. And I so know the importance of what we do. Um, and it, it really is just like a flip. And I think that's another reason why I was able to add like a little bit of a different experience is because I had come from the other side. I'd come from the artist background. I had, you know, built relationships with kind of artists who are now entering the market, um, who, and, you know, I had moved around kind of the, the young artist space. And so I could offer kind of Howard 495, a perspective of, um, ways to innovate in terms of our shows and things we could do different, but also, um, just understand, what artists are coming up and how how kind of how they navigate um the art market on on that side um so yeah to be to be on the other side of it is really interesting you know what I really loved about you guys too when I first met you the the openness also extends to the people who you work with because you also said to to me it really doesn't matter matter what your budget is yeah we'll we'll help you start to build a collection for sure and I feel like that is such a relief for people who love art but don't know where to start is to have someone who says don't worry it's okay if you don't have twenty thousand dollars oh my gosh yeah and this is about art that's a misconception as well I feel um you know sometimes we also feel that certain spaces are not for us um or there's like a certain privilege that comes with um types of things like when you think art collector you think affluent you think um this is not somewhere that I can associate myself with but actually it is very um you know affordable and it is very attainable for people to build collections um and that's something that I learned throughout this process and there actually is are ways that kind of every kind of an everyday person can um get in and um learn something from it and sometimes we just need to um, kind of accept that you know, we, we we can enter these spaces and really push ourselves to um, find a way in. It's tough though. It's really tough if you don't know someone. Um, you know, and that's kind of why advisors come in as well because people who are wanting to access certain things or learn certain things about the art market, you know, galleries sometimes are a bit private about the information that they they have or you know you there isn't always a comfortable entry point but an art advisor is kind of that good kind of middle ground person because we work for the client um and we go out and we deal with kind of the spaces that are hard to access and then we come and we help you Mm. 
If someone wants to build a meaningful collection for themselves, is it important to to build around a theme? Um, I wouldn't say. I mean, Krista might have her own opinion. She's been in in the industry a lot longer than I am. But in kind of the little experience I have, I don't think it's necessary to build around a specific theme per se. Um, I've been really interested in seeing people with quite diverse collections. I think it's always quite nice. I think for me, it's, it's, it's when I look at work, I see work in dialogue with one another. So I see what one work says to another and how it changes how you view um, pieces. That's why I'm really interested in hanging something really different against something completely op- opposite mm. to it and seeing how they kind of communicate. Um, which I'm not sure if that's all how people always view art, but that's just always how I've seen it. I've always been interested in curation, which is why I think um, building collections is is kind of that natural um, thing I'm attracted to mm-hmm. because there's, there's a very there's a very similar motive to it you're trying to find put together things in a way that maybe there isn't one um maybe there isn't they aren't the same medium or maybe they aren't from the same time frame but there is some sort of thread that kind of carries through them all Mm. um or maybe a point of friction that you know sparks a a dialogue dialogue, 100 percent, yeah for sure I think that's the best thing about art as well that it's it doesn't give you all the answers straight away um, but there, there is some movement for interpretation and for conversation. And I think that's the best kind of art that leaves um, some space for that. Mm. I remember in a previous conversation that I had with you and Krista, we were talking about the nature of Vancouver and sort of the insularness that happens here in relation to the greater art world. Mm-hmm. Um, how, how can the city break out of that? It, will we ever get there? I'd like to think so. I I for sure think, I think there just needs to be an open-mindedness firstly. Um, uh, I think Vancouver has amazing qualities and it's very proud of those qualities and it doesn't want to lose those intrinsic qualities, um, which I totally understand as it should. Like, I don't think this city, this city should try and be like another city. Um, I think it's just about um, opening up beyond um, kind of that insulinness as you described and just trying to um, realize that you can add, pull things in, if we're talking about a collection, you can pull things internationally into um, a typical kind of Canadian artist-based collection and you can still have a meaningful dialogue and maybe it might add more value or even um, a richness to what you already have. So, and I think that's the case. Like, I think there's... um, like when I when I think of art collectives and opportunities that I had in London, there is a so a huge sense of community and opportunity over there, and I feel like Vancouver has so much potential to offer that. It just needs to um, figure out how to like self organize and work together. I think that's something that I miss um, about London. There is a lot of uh, support for the arts as well. Mm. Um, there is a huge like we, we obviously have an arts council, which I know there is something similar here and I don't want to um, kind of make blanket phrases because I haven't been here long enough to really understand. But I think that's the first thing. Like as an artist, I really struggled to know what opportunities are available. I feel like it's not very accessible to find all the right information. Even if it is there, I wouldn't know where to look to mm. get it. And I think that's the first first step. Like we need to be really open about the information that's out there and make it accessible for people. And then we allow people to actually flourish to the like height of their potential. 
So they don't have to leave. Exactly. So they don't have to leave because then the more opportunity there is and the more um, we're kind of thinking of ways we can fund the arts in a in a more sustainable way and op- uh, allow artists to have like maintain their practice I think that's really difficult that's difficult anyway it's difficult in the UK but I imagine it's even harder in um, Vancouver as an artist to how do you afford to maintain your practice and then you know if you're trying to do shows I have seen um, things like August Studios and and uh, groups banding together to support young artists I know I know it's out there but I think how also do you help those artists reach that next step yes. as well, you know, to make their, not only their like artists, not only maintain an artist career, but also have a like sustainable artist career that you can keep practicing. Exactly. Yeah. I, that sort of um, harkens back again. I'm referring back to this talk easy pod, but Antoine Sargent was, was on there and he was talking about black artists and giving them the ability to, have a sustainable practice. And I was like, okay, someone's posting all the exhibitions that are on. And like, okay, now I can actually, you know, see what's on. And, and but like he he's one guy running running that platform and we kind of need to see um, more, more. more stuff like that. Yeah. Hmm. I want to go back to um, me emulating where I was like, you know, in, in Kingston. Like that, yeah, that was right. me there. Yeah, so... It's also labor, you know? Yeah. Oh, yeah, 100%. Explaining yourself is like huge emotional labor for sure. Mm. Out there, you have to be okay with, you know, like saying you have to be okay with going up to someone and, and, and talking, introducing yourself. It's like things I really struggle with, but I've had to face because I because I moved here. Mm. Well, you know, I really hope that you guys continue to have your long table dinners at Howard yeah. because that was really fun yeah I know that was really fun same and as she says he's like it's the best night of it my was, life <laughs> I he's honestly like, I felt the same way I'm like this is the best night that I've had in a really long time yeah. and I I feel that I enjoyed it because there was an energy in there mm-hmm. there was a diversity of people who were there sure. and it just felt like an it just felt like an energy that I hadn't felt in the city in a really long time so mm-hmm. I hope you you guys could continue to cultivate that Thank you. Yeah, for sure. I really want us to be able to do more of those. I think it just, I think it also creates a sense of community a little bit more. It's funny because with Muslim Sisterhood in the UK, this is a very common thing that we do. Hosting um, kind of like monthly or like every few months um, brunches and dinners is something that we really do because it makes such a difference for the community. It creates a sense of community when you bring people together and you have that shared environment over food, over a meal, over a laugh, over a laugh, like people just connect and you get to know people and you leave as better friends like than you did when you start, you know, you sit with a bunch of strangers and then suddenly you're all best friends by the end of it. Yeah. And that's like a beautiful thing that we really try and push because it's about creating joyful spaces. And Mm. that's something we, I push within my work in over there all the time. So it was really nice to have the opportunity during Andrew's show to be able to do that over here. And as you said, it was just like, it was a group of people who had never met um, before or just recently became friends or recently met each other. And to all sit in this space and just to have a really good time, it was, I think it was important. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Really important. Really important. Well, just a couple more questions for you. Um, have you seen Black Panther? Yeah. Okay. You know the scene where, you know, they take the herb and then they go to the ancestral plane? Yes. Mm. So if I gave you some herb right now, 
and you went to the ancestral plane. Yeah. What do you think your ancestors would tell you? Oh my god. Um. Wow. Hmm. I don't know. You know what's so funny? Because I love that scene. I love. That I scene. love that scene because I really. I really do feel that scene. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Also, because I think my whole life, my mom always used to talk about the past and talk about her relationship to her family. Like she would always talk about her family, especially family that were no longer with us and how much she had love for them. And even though I never met these people through her storytelling, I had such a love for those people as well, even though I didn't even know them. Like I didn't, I didn't know my grandfather but my mom talks about him with used to talk about him with such a reverence that I had so much respect for a man that I never even met. And so I feel like, yeah, so I, I, I don't know what they would necessarily say to me, but I really do have a lot of respect for my specifically my, my mom's like heritage and her family and where she's come from. And like, I'm always, I'm very much like her. She was always into like scrapbooking old family pictures and like collating old memories. She was very attached to the past. Um, But I have inherited a part of that nostalgia. Like I love looking at old photos and I love looking at old videos. I love seeing my relatives when they were younger because like there's this, it's so interesting to me, but it's, it's also like, I feel that joy that they felt like makes me happy as well. Like I feed on that joy as well. Like Mm. it's so nice for me to see what like rich lives they lived. So yeah, I don't know what they would say to me, but I like to think I'd be really happy to see them. And I think they'd be happy to see me. Mm. My final question with, and this is what I ask every guest with what you do, what is it that you want to leave behind in the world? What I do, what do I want to leave behind? Um, no, I'd like to think I leave behind some sort of um, like in- inspiration in the sense of like feeling like things can always work out. And even when things aren't going the way that you seem that like when one door closes, another one opens, I would like someone to look at like my kind of tumultuous journey of like even ending up here and feeling like nothing's nothing's going to come my way showing that even in those moments something still you know you you don't know where life is going to take you and I feel like I've I felt that so I felt that way earlier because of the type of loss that I faced in my life so I felt like I had that experience so much younger than a lot of my peers a lot of my peers are very very comfortable and good for them like they have both their parents they they have a stable nuclear family home like they have so much and they're just entering the work force and they're just starting to face these questions of like oh my god where is life going to take me or what's going to happen you know as adulthood um does it brings in a lot of uncertainty and I feel like I've already um faced a lot of uncertainty in my life from a young age so I would like to think that if someone was to look at my life they would say that okay with that uncertainty there is still so much possibility that can come your way Mm, I love that. Beautiful. Thanks. (laughs) If people wanted to connect with you, Muslim Sisterhood, where can they go? Um, Yeah, if they want to connect with me, you can DM me on Instagram. Um, Sarah Glamly. That's S-A-R-A-G-U-L-A-M-A-L-I. Yeah, you can DM me. And um, 
As for you, I I don't know if you notice, but you use the word joy so much in this conversation. So I hope that you continue to feel that and that you continue to create joyful spaces for others. Thank you so much. I appreciate I'm it. I'm so man. appreciative that I met you. Me too. Thank you so much. Thanks Thank for having me. Thank you for being here. As always, thank you for being here and for listening. To learn more about today's guest, visit the episode page for show notes and links on wearethecraft.com. You can find the entire podcast archive here or explore more conversations with past guests on Spotify and Apple. Don't forget to hit the subscribe button on these platforms, including YouTube, to get notified when new episodes drop. Any likes and shares on social media are deeply appreciated too. Sound and audio engineering for the show are by Andrew and Jaba Gaspis. All guest portraits and images are by Juno Kim. Appreciate you all and see you again soon.